Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 15. We are in Luke 15 in a sermon series entitled Lost and Found. And uh, we've been in Luke 15. This is our fifth week can you, can you believe it? Five weeks in just one chapter of Scripture. And we're going to spend one more uh, week next week. Uh, but we find ourselves in the middle of the story that is often known as the pro- parable of the prodigal son. And so today we're kind of reading uh, not the whole story, but just this portion in verses 21 to 24. And so please hear now the reading of God's holy word. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that now, as we just sang, speak, O Lord, so we would hear and listen, that now you do speak to us in and through your word. I pray, God, that as we give our fullest attention, that you would give to us understanding, you would give to us teachable hearts, you would give to us humility to receive, you would give to us great love and desire to take what is said, to believe it, and to let it begin to sink into our hearts and into our minds so that it would then change the way we live, the things that we say, the actions we do. Because your word is the power to transform lives. Encourage us who need encouragement. Rebuke us who need rebuking. Correct us who need correction. Lift up those who need to be lifted up. Heal those who are wounded. Father, we know your word can do this because in your word, there is power. We thank you, Lord, and so we commit this time to your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In my study of Luke 15, I came across this commentary that uh, recounted a very powerful story from a book by Margie Lewis entitled The Hurting Parent. And in this book, uh, Margie Lewis writes of a son who lived the life of the prodigal and eventually was found by God. And this is what Lewis writes about this son. After years of degenerate living and sampling a catalog of sinful lifestyles, he tried to take his life. One night, half a continent from home and his Christian parents, he stumbled into an all-night laundry, picked up the only piece of paper he could find, and scribbled out a suicide note. He tucked it in his pocket and went out to the parking lot. There he took a length of rubber hose he used for a tourniquet when he shot heroin, tied it around his neck, and hanged himself on the luggage rack of a parked car. He woke up in a hospital emergency room, recovered, and eventually went home. A little over a year later, he came to a real and profound experience with the Lord. Shortly after that, he was sorting through some of the things when he happened upon that suicide note. He turned it over and found to his amazement that he had written it on a Christian tract about the prodigal son. That spoke to me, he said. It told me that even at the lowest point in my life, 
I hadn't been able to escape God. Now, if you are a Christian here today, you can tell a similar story to this. Maybe not one of suicide or shooting heroin, but the story that says that no matter how far you ran, that no matter how deep you sank and no matter how lost you became, the searching father found you and he brought you home. And if you are still running, still sinking, or still lost, this can be your story as well. Because God is a father who is searching for the lost. We come to our third week in this parable, and what I want us to see is that the father is the central figure. You know, many Bible translations unhelpfully translate or edit and make this note above the parable. They call it the parable of the prodigal son. But I say that's unhelpful because if anything has shown us in the past two weeks, we know that this story is not about the son. It's about the father. And if you realize in verse 11, when Jesus introduced the parable, this is what he said. There was a man who had two sons. He didn't say there was a man who had a father and a brother. There was a man who had two sons. Why? Because the story is about the father. It's a revelation of the father. And so as we are in verses 21 to 24, I'd like to consider this gospel truth, this one-sentence summary. God's love and grace towards sinners initiates repentance, restoration, and radical joy. That God's love and his grace towards sinners, it initiates, it begins in us, our repentance, our restoration, and radical joy. And so I want to look at this passage by considering three things. The son's response to grace. That's verse 21. The father's response to his son's repentance. That's verses 22 to 23. And then the community's response to restoration. That's verse 24. So let's begin with this first point, the son's response to grace. We left off last week seeing that it was the father's selfless sacrifice, not the son's self-salvation that brought him home. And so let's read verse 20 just for some context. After the son has taken the money from his father, ran and spent it, found his life hidden in, uh, found his life spiraling down to, to being in a pig's pen, this is what he begins to do. He goes, I'll go home and I will work for my father. And so verse 20, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And what we saw last week was that this son had every intent to come back to repent, but that that repentance was not genuine. That he was actually trying to earn his way back into his father's favor. He says, don't treat me as a son. Treat me as a servant because I want to earn my way back in. But what we saw last week was that this dignified Jewish father, in seeing a son, was willing to endure the shame of the son. So he ran toward his son. You see, his son in leaving was not allowed back into the community. He would have been cast out because of the shame that he brought. But the father instead, he runs after his son. And it's in the father's embrace. It's in the father's hold and grip as showers of kisses are poured upon him that something happens to the son. You know, the English translation doesn't bring out the full extent of the original language. 
Here it says that the, son, that the father embraced him and kissed him. But the Greek will say something more like, he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him, and he kissed him. The son hasn't even uttered a single word, and yet he's met with the incredible grace of his father. Now, upon reading the story, one can object and say, well, the father must have discerned his son's heart. His father was looking at and saw his son returning home and so knew that his son was repentant. But as we just said, we know the son only came back in order to work his way back into his father's house. He didn't want a relationship with his dad. He wanted to be in debt to no man, simply earning his way back. But that's why the son is in for a great surprise. Imagine the confusion as the son walks into town and he sees his father running toward him. But he wouldn't have known it was his father at first. From a distance, he would have seen this man running and he would have thought, actually, that this was a child. Why? Because only children ran. But as he's running, he would have noticed this child is wearing the robes of a Jewish nobleman. Then he would have realized this is no child, this is a man. But he still wouldn't have known who he is. So he probably would have thought, who is this foolish man who is running as if he has no dignity? And it wasn't until this man became closer and closer when he realized, this is my father. This is my dad. It wasn't just the father pursuing him. In that moment, he sees grace running after him. You see, in that moment, he had every intention of practicing his rehearsed speech. He had written it out. He had gotten ready. He knew exactly what he was going to say. But upon seeing grace running toward him, something changes. Did you notice what changes? You see, in verses 18 and 19, we, we get a bit of insight into the son's psychology. And so the author, Jesus, uh, Math, or Luke, I'm sorry, but Jesus telling this parable tells us that this is what's going on in the son's head. He goes in verse 18, I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your servant. Treat me as one of your hired hands. Treat me as one of your hired hands. That is the crux on which the son goes back. When I go back, this is how I need to be received. And so he goes back. He has a plan. He's ready. He sees the father. He sees grace running toward him. Something happens. Verse 21. And the son said to him. Here's the moment of truth. He's prepared his speech. He knows exactly what he's going to say. He even knows how, he, how he's going to be trembling a little bit. Maybe he knows that he's going to come hesitantly. Right? Maybe some of you have practiced that. Right? When you know you've done something wrong, and I need, to go to, I need to go back to my wife, and I need to just look a little sorry. I need to quiver with my words just to make sure she knows I'm, I'm, you know, I'm actually really afraid of her. The son has practiced this. He sees the father. And here he goes, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So far, so good. It's just as he practiced. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Everything's going to plan. And now it comes down to this great request to be treated as a hired servant. But if you look in your Bibles, 
wait a minute. It's not there. The son had practiced saying, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Hire me as a servant. But everything except for the servant part is here in the son's confession. Why? What happened? He met the father's grace. The son returned home with the mentality of working hard and paying his dues back. But when the father embraces him and loves him and shows grace to him, the son's whole world comes crashing down because the son, although he's lived in his father's house since he was a baby till the moment he left, he never actually knew the father's heart. His relationship with the father was always based on works. It was always based on his performance. And so in this moment, when he comes home ready to work his way back in, the amount of grace and love that his father shows deconstructs him. His world comes crashing down on him. And this grace turns this boy's rehearsed repentance into real repentance. The son experiences for the first time not just guilty regret, but godly remorse. You see, the son incorrectly thought coming home was about paying back the debt of a lost inheritance. He didn't actually understand that it was about reconciling a relationship with his dad. Because it wasn't until his father's embrace that he actually realized what his rebellion and his running away actually meant. It's not just that he had wandered away far from the home. It's that he had wounded his father's heart. And so in that moment of understanding and discovery, he drops that last phrase because he realizes this. If it was about the financial restitution, then yeah, I could work hard and I could make it up. But if it's about amending a relational rift, only the father can do that. Only the father can mend the broken relationship because it was the father who was offended. It was the father who was rejected. Only the father can choose to forgive his son and welcome him in. It's the father's grace that leads to the son's repentance. Isn't this exactly what Apostle Paul taught in Romans 2 verse 4 when he said, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness, God's goodness, God's grace, God's love, God's favor is never meant to be used by us as an excuse to keep on sinning. God shows us love and grace and patience to stimulate heartfelt repentance that's actually more concerned about God than it is about us. Without grace, our repentance is so self-centered. We will either use our repentance as a good work by which we force God to forgive us. God, you have to forgive me because I'm repenting. Repentance is the good work that earns your forgiveness. Or we use repentance as a self-chastisement of sin. We heap condemnation upon ourselves. We keep telling ourselves that we're stupid and we're worthless and we're sinners and we're not worthy of anything before God. And we think that because of our self-inflicted guilt, that that is the payment for our sins. If I just feel bad enough, 
But God's grace disarms our excuses. God's grace disarms our attempt to use repentance as a righteousness. God's grace helps us see that behind the law we've broken is a law giver that we've offended. So it's only by God's grace that true repentance is engendered in the heart of sinners. And so let me ask you, knowing God's grace, believing in God's grace, does that draw you to humble confession of sin? Or do you use grace to remain in sin because you know you're forgiven? Is God's grace helping you repent regularly and specifically Or are you using his grace so you never have to come to him? That you never have to own it? Why? Because you know you're forgiven. See, when you properly understand God's grace in Christ, you understand that it initiates, it brings you to true repentance by which you throw yourself at his feet in mercy. That's what real repentance is. And it begins with God's grace. The second thing is this. Now that the son has repented, what is the father's response to his repentance? The father's grace initiates the repentance. Now, how does the father respond to that repentance? Well, look with me at verse 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The key word is but. Now, why is that? Because the son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son finally understands I've been living as an orphan. I've been living uh, not according to and worthy of the family name. In fact, I've only sullied this family name. I've dragged it through the gutter. I'm not worthy. That's his own assessment. But the father says, that's great and all. You have your assessment, but I have the final say. Dads, how many times have you said that to your son? But that, no, but I have the final say. The son says, I'm not worthy to be your son, but. And what we see the father do is begin a process of restoration. He's not seeking restitution, but restoration because he gives a robe, a ring, and shoes. Now, those are all symbolic because the best robe was a sign of dignity. It was a sign of dignity because the robe would have been the father's finest robe. It would have been what he wore uh, to special occasions where he sat at places of honor. He would wear a very special robe. In modern terms, maybe it's a very special suit that that, that you have, maybe a tuxedo, something that you wear to... to, to galas and to to fancy dinner parties. And so when the son is given the father's best robe, now others would be able to see the son and identify that he is the father's son. So giving him the robe is a way of restoration. Secondly, the ring. The ring is a sign of authority. It was a signet ring. And a signet ring was used because it had on it a seal, a family seal. It would be used to mark and sign official documents. So it was, a, it was a sign that the son is now trusted by the father. And then lastly are the shoes. And the shoes are a sign of full privilege. Because at the time that this, uh, at the time of Jesus, servants in a house, they actually walked around barefooted. Only members of the family wore shoes or sandals. And so by putting shoes on the son's feet, He was now the son welcomed in the home, not a servant merely working in it. 
And this is a powerful scene if you're following the whole narrative because this verse right here contrasts so strikingly with what happened in verse 16. Verse 16 says that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. On his own, trying to figure it out by himself, self-reliant, no one gave him anything. Now received in his father's home, bring quickly the best robe, a ring, shoes. The son did nothing to deserve this kind of treatment. In fact, he did everything to not deserve it. And having lost his entire inheritance, he returns empty-handed. The only thing he brings home is his desperation and his poverty. Yet the father exchanges the son's need with provision, his shame with dignity, his filth with royal robes, his powerlessness with authority, his solitude with family. The son is restored, not because he deserved it, because but because it delighted the father. And so having come to his father in pig-stained filth, he is restored, now clothed in garments of sonship. You see, this is a major biblical theme that's developed through the Bible. The fact that God restores by putting robes or rings or garments. In fact, if you remember in the very Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were covered in shame and they were hidden in their nakedness. And yet, how does God restore them? And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. We see Joseph being delivered out of the pit of prison. And he is restored to a position at, in Egypt as the second in command. And we read, Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. We see this in Zechariah 3, the vision of Joshua, the high priest, being restored. It says, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Over and over again, throughout the Bible, God symbolically restores his people by putting on them new robes, new garments, new rings. And so as Jesus is giving this parable, these Jewish leaders who were experts in the Old Testament, they would have understood the connections that Jesus was making. By grace, he brings about the son's repentance. By grace, he issues the son's restoration. The clothing is a sign of new restoration. See, by grace, he changes your status from orphan or slave to adopted son and daughter, and he does this by clothing you. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for my soul shall exalt in my God For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. How does that happen? How does a runaway and a renegade like you and me, how are we received as rightful children of God? And the answer is only found in the hope of the gospel. Because you see, in this parable, the son in this parable, he ran away in open rebellion. But there is another son who was sent away 
in obedient resolve. Whereas the son in this parable, he left his home to seek out and to fulfill his own will. There was another son who left his home to seek out and to fulfill his father's will. You see, there is a better son, a son much better than the one in the parable. Who is that man? He is the one telling the parable. Jesus himself, he is the perfect son. And what Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection is he makes the way possible for us to be restored with the Father. Now, how did he do this? He did this by taking on our sin and our shame as they were nailed to the cross with him. Because it's on the cross as he takes our place, as he is rejected, we are then received. By exchanging places with us, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed. The gospel says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant so that you and I could be adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. Ultimately, it was Jesus who bore the transgressions of our prodigal son ways so that we could reap the blessings of the perfect son's work. And there on the cross, as Jesus is crucified, it's interesting that Luke says, as Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, that Luke then comments, and they cast lots for his garments. Why? Because Jesus on the cross was stripped naked in utter humiliation so that you can be clothed garments of salvation and robes of righteousness. It's only through Jesus that we are restored to God our Father. My question is, does that bring you great joy? Does it excite your heart? But almost in a way that rebukes us, if we are like the younger son in the parable, and God, our Savior, is the Father. And I ask the question, does this excite you? And you think about that. Well, if you notice, Jesus never gets back to the younger son again. He moves right on. Why? Because even our salvation is not about us. It's about God. You see, Jesus is more concerned with telling us about the joy of the Father than the joy of the Son. You know, I don't know about you, but I am a horrible gift giver. I just don't have the ability to anticipate people's needs. And so, you know, I'm the guy in Christmas gift exchanges where when I give mine out, it's always received with a sigh (laughs) and then an obligatory, oh, thanks, this is really going to be helpful. And I just see the disappointment in their eyes. And I'm always confused because there's always that, that, that one person who is so excited for you to get their gift in a gift exchange. or like, oh, I can't wait to see who gets mine. Or if they give you a gift, they're the ones who actually say, open it now. And in, in front of you? <laughs> what if I don't like it? Aren't you scared? <laughs> Yet... They have so much joy. I, and I used, to, I used to think, man, they must really be full of themselves. Because they, they must think that, they, they, that they're really able to give good gifts. And I've come to realize it's not that. It's just that these people love to give gifts. They love to give. 
God's joy in our repentance and God's joy in our restoration, it overshadows even our joy. We're the ones who receive these things, but God's joy is even greater. Why? First of all, because God is the giver of all good things. God's delight is in giving. And second, God's gift is the most precious and costly of all gifts, the gift of salvation through the death of his son. And so for these two reasons, even our salvation is about the joy of the Father. And so if you look at verse 23, the Father says, And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. The father wants to throw a party. Now, at this time, consuming meat was actually really rare. Eating meat was only reserved for special occasions and major religious holidays. And secondly, if you notice, it says here, bring the fattened calf. Now, here's, I found this interesting. The word for fattened, is the same word for grain. You know why? Because a fattened calf is a grain-fed calf. I've been accused uh, of talking a lot about steak when I preach. (laughs) And it just seems I can't escape it. Because if you think about Kobe beef, you know what they're fed, grain and massaged, and that's how they get the perfect marbling, and that's why the meat is so delicious. This fattened cow, this is Kobe beef of the, of the ancient Near East. And this, this calf would have been enough to feed an entire community, and that's a good thing because the father's plan is to throw a large party. Actually, later in verse 25, it says that there was even music and there was dancing at this party. He wants to throw an elaborate celebration for who? For this runaway, renegade rebel. And you can just imagine that as the Pharisees and the scribes heard this story, they're thinking, the apple does not fall far from the tree. What do I mean by that? Well, the son is called the prodigal son. Prodigal, if you don't know, means uh, spending money recklessly, lavishly. And so the prodigal son... We see it, takes his inheritance, goes, and he spends it out in reckless living until he is penniless. But then you hear what the father's doing. He's killing the fattened calf for his runaway son without demanding repayment or punishing him in any way. He's sacrificing this lavish gift on a son who shouldn't have run away in the first place. He is spending freely and recklessly on an undeserving child. Who's the real prodigal? It's the dad. It's the dad. You know, Tim Keller actually captures this in his book on Luke 15. He entitles it The Prodigal God, saying, Who is the true one who spends and spends and spends? It is the father as he hosts now a celebration for his son. Why? Because he was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and he's found. The father's so overcome with joy. And oh, how the heavens ring with jubilation. I just won, come home. My question to you, church, is this. Do you believe the father celebrates over you? Because you were once lost and you are now found. Do you actually believe that the God of the heavens and the universe rejoices over you? Because you were once dead and now you are alive. In fact, to not believe in this kind of God is to have an unbiblical view of God. 
to not understand that God has great joy and delight over you is to deny what he has spoken and revealed to us in his word. Does your God delight over you? Or does your God merely scold you and frown at your every mistake? Does your God's voice get hoarse because he's constantly disapproving and disappointed? Or because he's singing loudly over you? Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I think sometimes reformed folk get so uncomfortable with this kind of language and this kind of emphasis. We go, whoa, that sounds way too man-centered. That's way too me-centered. But no, friends, this is not man-centered theology. This is very God-centered theology. Because it's taking God's word seriously. It's taking God's joy seriously. It's taking God's heart seriously. In fact, reformed folk should and can have the best understanding of the Father's delight and smile and kisses over his people. Why? Because we understand and we believe that it was only at the cost of his precious son's life that he sacrificed him to purchase you. So how much are you valued? You are valued at the cost of his own son. And so wouldn't it follow that the father would have great joy in saving you? Even greater joy because it was nothing that you brought to him but it was everything that he did for you. A skilled carpenter finishes his work. He sands it down, and he sings over what he has accomplished. So too, the father finishes his work of salvation, and he sings over you because he is your savior. For those of you who were once lost but now are found, once dead but now alive in Jesus Christ believe that God has joy and delight over you this very day not because of your works and not because of your performance but because of his great salvation that he has accomplished for you you see because even when you sin and you fall away and you relapse and you forget and you no longer feel worthy to be called his child And frankly, sometimes we no longer feel worthy to be called a child because the way we are living life is not worthy of being his child. Yet even in those moments, by God's grace, he calls you back. He beckons you back. He welcomes you back. And God's promise is that to all those to whom God has given the robes of his sonship, if you are found and you are alive in Jesus, there is nothing that you can do that will make God love you more and nothing you can do that will make God love you less. Why? Because God does not love you based on anything you do for him. He loves you based on everything that Christ has done. You see, this needs to change the way we understand the Father. Do you believe that he sings over you? The great Puritan writer John Owen wrote in his famous book, Communion with God. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, 
the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. How incredible. The Father has radical and great joy over us. And I'll end with this last point. The community's response to restoration. Let's look at verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, the radical joy of the father is not his alone. It is the joy of the community as they too begin to celebrate. Now, what does this mean for us? That means God's joy is not only something that he selfishly hoards himself, but it's something that he allows us to participate in. It's a joy he wants us to share with others. The question for us is this, in our theology, do we have room to believe in a God that Jesus reveals, uh, believe in a God like Jesus reveals in, this, in these parables? H- Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest, and he wrote a great book of reflection on um, Luke 15, and this is what he writes. I realize that I am not used to the image of God throwing a big party. It seems to contradict the solemnity and seriousness I have always attached to God. But when I think about the ways in which Jesus describes God's kingdom, a joyful banquet is often at its center. We have a God in heaven who rejoices in the dead being made alive and the lost being found. We have a Savior who has come to make just those things happen. We have a Spirit who works those things and affects them into people's lives. The question is, do we have a community and a church and a culture that is praying for such things? that is desiring such things, that is seeking such things, that is prioritizing such things. Let's not worry about the triune God. He's all in about this. The question is, are we his people all in about this? Are we becoming the kind of church where only the Pharisees would feel at home? Or is our church a place where prodigals and prostitutes know that the love of God abounds beyond great measure here? In this church, are we cultivating a culture where the scribes would be a great comfort here? Or are we cultivating a culture where sinners and the sinned against know that God's grace is shared and enjoyed and celebrated? You know, as those who were once dead but now alive, lost and now found in Jesus Christ, it was only by God's grace, his initiating grace, that we came to repentance and that we were restored And now it's by God's gracious invitation that we are allowed to share in that kind of joy. So if our God is a God who loves homecoming celebrations, are we a people that loves them too? Let's think deeply about that. Because the emphasis as we've, and I'll close with this, the emphasis we've, the repeated themes that we've seen in Luke 15 is something lost Something found, a joy that's shared. For just as the shepherd went out to his neighbors and said, celebrate with me that this sheep is now found. The woman went out and said, celebrate with me, this coin is now found. The father saying, would you celebrate with me that lost sinners are being found? Let that be a real concern a real vision, a real prayer in our church. Pray with me, please. 
Father, I thank you so much that your grace is what begins it all. It is not anything good within us. As we found, Lord, in this parable to be very, very true, your grace takes our rehearsed, self-righteous, selfish repentance, and it turns it into something genuine. I pray, God, that as we understand and we really begin to wrestle now with your grace, that what it would do in us is not cause us to keep living in sin, to refuse coming to you, but that instead it would open up the way so that we know now that the God of grace beckons us to himself so we can confess our sins in humility. We can confess them and we should uh, repent regularly and specifically because we know that since it was not by our good works we were brought in, it would not be by our bad works that we are cast out. We thank you that it was Jesus on the cross who was disrobed, stripped, so that we could then have the garments of sonship. We could be restored into your family. I pray, Father, that each one of us here would understand, leaving this very place, that you do sing a song over us, a song of joy and delight, because you are our God, our Redeemer, and our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, who celebrates in our homecoming, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear the dismissal from Ecclesiastes 12? The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Friends, go in peace.